in in our series on 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 biblical economics, we reached a place where I would only have one class left, and that would be today, and then it'd be quite a long way, and I'd be beginning something something different, with respect to how Christians are to read the Old Testament books of prophecy. Um, and these are all ideas that are being developed in my mind about how to read ancient texts at all. And I've become far more serious. Well, maybe I'm not, I'm not more serious. I think I perceive better some of the differences of ancient texts. I see it from a perspectives I had not quite grasped it before. Recently, I've started rereading Herodotus and rereading Thucydides. And I've, when I was younger, I just read those in the continuity because they are, in fact, historic continuity. But now it's becoming very clear to me that the perspective, how different their perspectives are. And I'm turning that back now on the, on the Bible and, and Josephus. And anyway, I'd be beginning something brand new and this, today's not the day to do it. I want to talk to you today about something much more pertinent to the season we're in right now. As we, this is our last week of Lent. There are 40 days in Lent. Okay, begins on Monday, ends on Friday. Forty days. And so this is the last week of Lent. There are only five Sundays in those six weeks. Only five Sundays. Today we have the last one. And as I prepared this, this talk this morning, it seemed to me that I probably should have given this one at the beginning of Lent rather than toward the end. I want to talk about the structure of the Gospel lectionary for Sundays during Lent. One thing we must never presume when we read an ancient text, we must never presume it was intended for private reading. It almost never was. That's only become clear to me just this past year. I knew that epistles were read out loud. I, I knew that Homer was read out loud. I knew the plays were read it never occurred to me till this past year when I reread Herodotus. Herodotus is giving a lecture or a series of lectures. I never, I never, never dreamed on that until this, just this past year. But it's very clear in the, uh, in, in, the, in the Greek text. The words he's using all have to do with a presentation to an audience. Not a single line of the New Testament except perhaps the epistles to Timothy and Titus <laughs> were, were intended for private reading. Now, it doesn't mean you, you're not supposed to read them privately, but in a certain sense, it does mean you're not supposed to read them privately. You're supposed to read them as though you're proclaiming them, which is why the tradition of the church is, even in your private reading of Scripture, you read it at least sotto voce. You don't read it with your eyes or just in your mind. You're supposed to hear it. In fact, if you're reading it correctly, you're supposed to savor it. <laughs> Sweeter than the honeycomb. Okay. You're supposed to savor it. <laughs> T 
taste it. It's a work of literature. <laughs> uh, well, uh, okay, I'm getting too worked up. <laughs> it's been obvious to me for a very, very long time, at least since the 60s, I mean 1960s, not the real 60s, but the 1960s, <laughs> that this was particularly pertinent to the Gospel of Mark. The oldest, or at least second oldest, but probably the oldest, of our vellum manuscripts of the Bible is the Codex Vaticanus, the Vatican, the Vatican Codex, named that because it's in the Vatican Library. The sign for that is just the, the capital letter B, so it's sometimes called Codex Vaticanus B. It's our oldest vellum manuscript of the Bible, of the entire Bible. Just, when I, just to say something like that, it sort of wipes me out. But it's, 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 pretty much, it's pretty much contemporary with the Sinaiticus, which is in the British Museum, and the Alexandrinus, which is also in the British Museum. In fact, in the British Museum, they're on either side, get this, of the central text, which is Magna Carta. <laughs> I just think it's interesting, Magna Carta flanked by the two. <laughs> well, anyway, there are lots of strange things in England. Okay. In the Codex Vaticanus, the Gospel of Mark is broken into sections. That's not true of the other Gospels. It's broken into sections. Okay. Clearly meant as lectionary readings to be read in sequence. Well, many years ago, I ran into uh, an Anglican bishop, the Archbishop of Quebec, by the name of Philip Carrington, who wrote a book called The Primitive Christian Calendar, in which he began to trace, he, he took that manuscript <coughs> and began to compare the sequence of readings in that manuscript with the readings that were going on at the same time in the synagogue. And he matched them. <coughs> so you have, for example, the multiplication of the loaves is read exactly the same time as the manna. Then he wrote a little, a little commentary later on called According to Mark. That's Philip Carrington. He's been my guide in the Gospel of Mark for a very, very long time. When I was teaching New Testament at Neshota House back in 1978, I was a second to junior instructor at Neshota House. The junior instructor at Neshota House was a man by the name of Arthur Michael Ramsey, the former Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> so each evening as we walked into Evensong, I'm walking beside Arthur Michael Ramsey in procession. <laughs> the first time I, that happened, 
I'm thinking to myself, well, last time I saw him walk into a church, he was walking in to try beside Pope Paul VI. I said, he has really come down in this world. <laughs> or maybe I've come up a little bit. Okay. Anyway, Carrington died in 1978, and I was there in chapel at Evensong when we were praying for the departed and to hear Ramsey pray for the repose of the soul of, uh, of Phil Carrington. It was a very mo moving experience because Carrington had, had such an important role in my own formation. The Gospel of Mark is certainly set out as a lectionary. It was a lectionary for the church at Rome and also the church of Alexandria because Mark is associated with both churches, remember. Um, if you want to know more about this, go to no, 1998 Touchstone. Touchstone 1998, where I published a long article. I can't remember the name of it, Jim, but it's about, it's about, it's about Mark, uh, uh, it's about James, and, I think it's called James and John, or something like that. Where I did, I, I, I did the comparison between this, the story we had this morning of James and John and Mark 10, were the same story in, in Matthew 20. I did a bit did a study on that, and I traced. I traced the treatment of that passage through the entire, through the entire patristic corpus, through all the fathers of the church, through all the medieval theologians, up to about the 15th century. I did a very thorough study on all the. That's all in Touchstone. But, but, uh, the Gospel of Mark was written in the context of the fire at Rome in July of the year 65. And that's, and that's all covered in Tacitus and Suetonius in their descriptions of the fire at Rome and the and this subsequent and consequent persecution of Christians um, by Nero. That's the context in which the Gospel of Mark is written. Anyway, if you find that article, if you, if, if you find you, you don't have a subscription to Touchstone, then you should certainly procure one. <laughs> um, but I'd be glad if you just send me an email, I'd be glad to send you a file of that article right, where I describe how the Gospel of Mark is. You, you can get it in many commentaries, but, but I, I put it very succinctly. Now, the second half of the Gospel of Mark, okay, we began reading toward the end of the first week of Lent. No, toward the end of the second week of Lent. Because the gospel for the, for the, for the third Sunday of Lent, if the, you, you have it in your, on your text. Just look at the text I gave you. Now you notice the first, that the first part of the text is indented you see that? The reason I've indented it is because that's not read on a Sunday. But that is the first prophecy of the Passion. Now, Father Andrew this morning mentioned there are three prophecies of the Passion. And that's, that's the structure of the Gospel of Mark. At the beginning of, 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 of Mark, two, the second half of Mark. Okay? The first half of Mark ends with, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay? Or Thou art the Christ. Peter's confession, which immediately follows the healing of the, the first healing of a blind man. Okay. 
right after that. Mark writes, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. It's a new beginning. So you start to get the theme of the passion in the Gospel of Mark. He began. The first Sunday we read this text begins with verse 34. And you heard this text several weeks ago on the third Sunday of Lent. Our lectionary is a little bit mixed up simply because the later insertion of Sunday of Orthodoxy, which took the gospel, took Mark out and put in a text of John, which is more, more appropriate to the feast. I'm not going to pass any judgment on that, except it does sort of throw the wheel kind of out of balance. Uh, but I certainly don't want to criticize the lectionary. Since, in fact, I believe the formation of the Lenten lectionary, and I thought I should use one of the great structural things I've ever seen in my life. I mean, whoever put together the Lenten lectionary for the Orthodox Church was a genius, just simply a genius. Um, this juxtaposition of these texts, I mean, what we had this morning, can you drink the cup that I'm to drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm to be baptized with? To get that beside all this up about the blood of Christ in, in, the, in the Epistle of Hebrews. Father Andrew brought that out. All, all of this. Uh, well, in our own lectionary, well, remember what Lent is about. What are we doing Lent? Why are we having Lent here? We're having Lent for Michael. Aren't we? I'm sorry? We're having Lent, we're having, we're having Lent for you. Yes, I'm probably the biggest sinner in the world. <laughs> we do not quantify these things. <laughs> because you're joining the church. Okay? You're joining the church. Two weeks from yesterday, we're going to be bringing people into the church. We've always brought people to the church on that day. The catechumens will be baptized. Okay? Two weeks, 13 days before this happens. Okay? Each of them is being asked, can you be baptized with my baptism? Can you drink my cup? Because if you do, Nero is going to burn you at the stake. Your children are going to be thrown onto spears. You are going to taste the cross. Got the picture? This is what baptism means. It's not a nice way of naming babies. It's direct preparation for death. Now, people who called me back in the old days when I was pastor here, people would call me and they would meekly and say, my daughter is going to be in town next week. Is there any way I can have my grandchild baptized? And then they would hear the law and the prophets. <laughs> Mainly the prophets. <laughs> okay. Do you think we're into magic? Are you not aware there's a water shortage? <laughs> we're not going to waste water. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, I'm having way too much fun up here. Uh, you, you see, the Gospels of Mark is written in that context. 
the presumption of the Orthodox Church, the church you, you're, you belong to, the presumption of the Orthodox Church is you join on Sunday. On Monday, the Romans crucify you. The Saracens behead you. Okay. Al-Qaeda burns you alive. The communists take you out and shoot you. That's a presumption. Now, do you want to have that kid baptized? That's what you're dealing with. Take up your cross and follow me. So how does the second half of Mark begin in our lectionary? The third Sunday of Lent, verse 34. When he had summoned the people with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If one is becoming a Christian for the purpose of self-fulfillment, forget it. If one is accepting the gospel in the hopes that it will lead to his coming to his full potential, forget it. It's an embracing of the cross out of love for Christ our Lord in whom we put all our trust. Whoever desires his life, he says, will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And you know the, the rest of the text. The next Sunday, which is last Sunday, is the story of that follows immediately the transfiguration. Jesus comes down from the mountain. He had, there's this discussion about Elijah coming first and so forth. And then he comes to the, the, the base of the mountain, and there's this demonic force that's taken possession of this little boy. And he's being thrown into catatonic fits, and uh, all the symptoms seem to be like something like grand, grandma, uh, grandma Cedar, you know. Um, you don't see that anymore because it's hand medication. When I was a, when I was a young man, in the last century, <laughs> and keep in mind I'm I'm very very aware I am now I am now physically closer to ninety than I am to eighty, so I can remember some things. Uh, you saw you saw you saw grandma seizure all the time, all the time. I don't know how many times, when I was a, when I was a young man, uh, bending over somebody. And sticking a rag in their, in their mouth, to, so for them to chew on, and just holding them and praying over them until, until it went away. You don't you don't see that anymore at all. It's all controlled by medication. Anyway, those are the symptoms of this demonic possession of that little boy. And Jesus, of course, drives out the demons. This we had this Sunday last last Sunday, didn't we? Yeah, this is the story we had last Sunday. And Jesus and the apostles asked, "How come we couldn't do that?" He says, "This kind can be driven out." only by prayer and fasting. You see, last Sunday, last Sunday is a Sunday, if we were following the ancient rules, last Sunday we should have done our first exorcism for those being baptized. Okay. Last Sunday. You start to start your baptisms, uh, start your exorcisms. Just a few weeks before, you start your exorcisms. Okay. And you're there going to be exorcised. 
actually what we're doing when we baptize is drive out demons. That's among the things we do, we do other things, obviously. So last Sunday, we, we had the, the, have the exorcisms, the expulsion of demons. And then Jesus immediately after that says, you've got the text. Jesus said they, they can't drive it up except by prayer and fasting. Then verse 30, 930. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee and he would not have anyone know it, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. And they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask him. So bewilderment and fear is the response of the apostles to the word of the cross. In the first prophecy of the cross, in chapter 8, Simon Peter, who had just, a couple of verses earlier, Simon Peter, who had confessed him as the Christ, decides to take matters into his own hands. Peter is a success Christian. He thinks the, thinks the whole purpose is, is something else. So Peter takes Jesus aside and texts us, and he rebukes him. He says, we can't let this happen. We can't let this happen. Remember Jesus' response to him? Okay. It's, a, it's, it's an exorcism of Peter. Yeah. Get behind me, Satan. Get behind me. Okay. There's, there's the word of the Son of God to the top apostle. Okay. Get behind me, Satan. See, what really needs exorcism is the church, the leadership of the church. The teaching ministry of the church. That must be exercise. Get the demonic out of there. You don't savor the things of God. You, you savor the things of men. You think we're Christians to be a success. You think we're Christians here for fulfillment. Whatever you think we are, we are here for something entirely different. And that's a fairly radical message. Um, so today in the fifth Sunday of Lent, where we are now, you had the text this morning, Father Andrew uh, was very merciful to me this morning. He could have blown me out of the water. <laughs> when I realized what I've been doing, I'm, wait a minute. He might not leave me anything to say. <laughs> and I felt, so good. I felt so good this morning when he shifted. He started talking about Jacob. Uh, oh. <laughs> He's talking about Jacob. Okay, that's fine. I don't think about Jacob. <laughs> so this morning, for the first time, at least in some churches, not in all the churches, uh, Christians were going to be hearing about their baptism, especially about the chalice. They wouldn't necessarily know about that ahead of time, even before experiencing it. St. John Chrysostom believed, and his practice, was they should not approach the chalice until they knew what it was. So St. John Chrysostom, what, what the meaning of the communion was part of the, of, of the pre-baptismal catechesis. It's not the same of all fathers. It's not the same, for example, of Cyril of, of, of Jerusalem. 
in Cyril of Jerusalem, when he comes out to give the sermon on the morning of Pascha, he comes out to give the sermon. He's telling these newly baptized people, I suppose you were wondering what that was last night. <laughs> After you were baptized, you came into church. They had no idea what it was. They thought the communion should be experienced before it was theorized about. Just the opposite of the way that we at the West would want. You know, even when, uh, even when uh, Pope uh, Pius X lowered the age for receiving communion back to age six, he wouldn't lower it any lower than that because they must know what they're doing. See, in the Orthodox Church, we never presume anybody knows what they're doing. <laughs> 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 we, never, we don't make that presumption because you're always doing more than you know. It's always bigger than you could possibly theorize about it. You know? So by the times you explain what, what, what the person is doing, he's already been taking communion for eight years. <laughs> well, he gets Holy Communion right after, which is supposed to be a, an experience that you grow into. Well, there where we are now. Now the rest of this week, we will, oh, okay, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm skipping something. Notice that after those texts, I indent another text at the end. Okay. And those are the last verses of Mark 10. That follows immediately on the, on the, on the text we had this morning, the third prophecy of the Passion, Mark 10. That is a story where Jesus now, on the way to Jerusalem has reached Jericho. Jesus begins in ministry in the second half of Mark. He starts at the north in Caesarea Philippi in chapter 8 where you have the first prophecy of the Passion. The next prophecy of the Passion takes place down near Capernaum on the, on the shore of the Dead Sea. The last one comes just right before Jericho. He's moving down. All through chapters 8, 9, and 10 of Mark, you have the word hados, which means way. I talked about this recently, didn't I? Way. We talked about the two ways uh, in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, we did, it, was, it, it was my Wednesday night talk. Yeah, my Wednesday night talk on the Psalms. Yeah. Uh, the theme of the way keeps appearing. Hodos, you translate the way, the path, the road, whatever, okay? Notice that the last word in chapter 10 of Mark is hodos. That last scene, which immediately follows the reading we had this morning, is Bartimaeus at Jericho, who's blind. And he's the one who's finally confessing. All the things Jesus has been looking for. He's the one who finally confesses, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's crying out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody's saying, knock it off, you're creating a scene. For a long, you're going to think, they're going to be, you're giving the impression that Christians are radicals. We, this has got to stop. <laughs> he keeps crying out, and Jesus calls him. 
And Jesus says to him, what do you want? What can I do for you? Lord, that I may see. See, that last story is about holy illumination. That's your last thing before. But then Jesus enters into, into Jerusalem. Next, and that's the, that, that's the gospel, of course, of we're going to have next, next uh, Sunday uh, of the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Jesus restores this man's sight, or gives him sight. He now sees. He sees. And what's the last verse, chapter, verse 52? What is verse, I think it's verse 52. What's the last thing he sees? What's the last thing? He followed him along the way. Jesus goes into Judea, goes to Jerusalem to suffer and die. It's a story about discipleship. One does not follow Jesus unless Jesus gives the light for them to do it. Notice, faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Boy, am I, am I clinging to that. I must tell you, I am clinging to that with all my life, that faith is a gift. I have never been more tempted in faith in my whole life than I have been now. If you think it's going to get easier, let me give you a little clue. Um, I used to wonder about Tertullian. Tertullian said, credo quia absurdus est. I believe because it's absurd. I believe because it's absurd. Uh, we, are the mo we are the most foolish of people if Jesus is a fraud. We are the most foolish of people if Jesus is, is delusional. And those are the only two options if he's not the Son of God. He's either a fraud or he's delusional. And we base our whole life on his claim. Mm -hmm. We should be aware of the gravity of this thing and hear the sweet people are coming down and I'm sure they're going to have much more to say than I could possibly. Uh, Glory to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit, now and ever, the God who is, who was, and is to come at the end of time. Amen. Amen.